Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 29, verses 14b through 35. After Jacob has stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave, gave his servant Gozilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Belhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, where she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I bore him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I'll praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Okay, happy uh, bright and cold day, cold Sunday to you. Uh, today we start our uh, second sermon series of the year based upon the three virtues found in our church key verses. So First Thessalonians 1.3, we continually remember, our, remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the first series attempted to expand on Paul's phrase uh, of work produced by faith. We thought about uh, Apostle James's rendition of genuine faith producing measurable works. We then jumped to the Gospel of Mark uh, to study how the bleeding woman's faith worked to strengthen Jairus's wobbly faith. Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus's challenge to the crowd 
that they experienced the work of God, which was first and foremost faith in Jesus himself. Uh, now we transition to love. Uh, my plan is to mainly follow the application focused on in on during last year's retreat concerning covenantal love between people of God with one another. Of course, love for God and, and being loved by God is also a very prevalent and fruitful theme in the Bible. Um, I plan to, however, select scripture passages which might help us grapple with the benefits and challenges of trying to love a fellow believer, fellow follower of God. Uh, we kick it off with an Old Testament story found all the way back in Genesis. Uh, in one sense, it's a good old-fashioned love story where Abraham's grandson, the future patriarch Jacob, literally labors uh, for the hand of Rachel. Uh, through the narrative, I want us to think about what makes labor, hard work, effort worthwhile? And what are the prompts that can be sustained and which eventually peter out? And romantic attraction is certainly a very powerful motivation in life and in this story. But I believe there are other aspects beyond uh, romantic attraction slash consummation that can also be gleaned. Uh, I want to organize the sermon into three sections as follows. So labor prompted by, right? That's the heading. First love, the, the, the first um, describes Jacob's uh, love for Rachel, and then love or, or labor prompted by obligation. And of course, the underlying deception, Laban forcing Jacob basically to work another seven years. And then labor prompted by desperation. And that's the sad story of Leah, right? And the four sons that she uh, gives birth to. The context of our story is that Jacob is on the run. He has fled his family home because his twin brother Esau has threatened to take his head because Jacob had stolen the blessing that was due Esau, the firstborn. Jacob journeys to Paddan Aram, uh, where he finds refuge in the household of his relative Laban. We're introduced to Laban's two daughters, the elder Leah and the younger Rachel. The description of Leah is ambiguous. Uh, some interpreters say her eyesight was bad. Right? Others that her eyes were dull and lacked luster. But commentators agree that she had some kind of weakness or trait that would negatively impact her marriageability. Hence, Laban's eagerness to try to marry her off by hook or by crook. Uh, Rachel, on the other hand, is described in glowing terms with respect to her external appearance. Uh, already, I think there's much to possibly discuss about the cultural values uh, slash mores uh, concerning women of that time. Uh, for today's sermonic purposes, I will forego weighing in on that interesting subtopic, uh, except to state uh, that neither an individual's worth or image nor our evaluation of another person should ever be based solely on outer appearance. As in 1 Samuel 16, even though the world judges by the outside, God looks at the heart. Um, whether it only established the initial attraction for Jacob or if it persisted as a shallow infatuation with Rachel by Jacob, uh, verse 28 informs us that Jacob was in love with Rachel. And this love was so robust, it was strong enough for him to offer seven years of labor uh, as a bride price, if you will, uh, to her father Laban to earn her hand in marriage. 
Again, this is a potential locus for us to pause and take modern issue with marriage arrangements in ancient Near Eastern culture. But again, I will have, for the most part, decline. Yeah, these are indeed patriarchal narratives in more, more ways uh, than one. To stay on track with my main theme, let us look at verse 20, where it says, Jacob serves a full seven years to fulfill his side of the bargain. Seven years, he worked hard for his uncle in livestock management. But the backbreaking work and the protracted length of time felt like an easy few days for him because of his love for her. Oh, the triumph of love. Jacob was so smitten by Rachel that his whole outlook, experience, output, and even his sense of time was consumed by his dedication uh, to her. The ardor of his heart overcame the arduousness of the work. She was worth it to him. Indeed, this is uh, by definition a labor prompted by love. It could be said that to Jacob, it didn't even feel like work. Right? It was a joy. He bounded in the mornings. Uh, he bounded up and put himself, applied himself because he knew what was at the end of the seven years. It felt like gossamer wings. It was glorious because it represented how full his heart of love was for her. So I asked Mona if I could say something cheesy about you know our seven years, our counterpart, and she kind of shook her head. And uh, kind of turned up her nose a little bit. Um, so I'll just give a, a like a personal example. When uh, our family went on our uh, went to Europe about five years ago, the 20, 25th anniversary trip uh, and stuff like that. Um, you know, we've never been to Europe, and you know, it's complicated, and it's going to go to a, a lot of cities and, and the like. So, you know, I had to, you know, it fell on me to do the research and kind of organize everything. And I got these Google Docs of like. People who love Google Docs because there's like there's like like ten pages worth of like details and stuff. They were helpful, but it was a little bit overwhelming. But I had, I was looking forward to this trip, like triple lifetime kind of thing, and you know uh, it represented you know a, a blessing for our family, and so it was fun. I usually don't like I, I'm into schedules, I'm into organization, but I don't enjoy it. But I remember you know looking at that and just kind of trying to craft the perfect trip. For that was a, a really a, a, it wasn't work at all. It wasn't like labor on my part. I didn't ho hold my family accountable for <laughs> forcing me to do this because it you know came from the heart. Um, we get a similar vibe uh, in one mystic's reflections on his love for Christ um, in the book *Imitation of Christ*, compiled in the 15th century. Here are some quotes from the writings of the Catholic monk uh, Thomas Akempis: "Love feels no burden." thinks nothing of trouble, attempts what is above its strength, pleads no excuse of impossibility, for it thinks all things lawful for itself and all things possible. It is therefore able to undertake all things. And it completes many things and warrants them to take effect, where he who does not love would faint and lie down. And then separately, he that loveth flieth, runneth, and rejoiceth. He is free and cannot be held in. Well, how awesome if these sentiments described uh, our labors uh, of love. I think these remarks are quite germane to our experiences of trying to love one another in the body of Christ. 
Um, maybe more so in the kind of typical familial or friendship relationships, the idea of having to work hard at loving Christian relationships, I think it's a familiar feeling or realization. You know, these relationships don't come easy. Uh, I, I think in the church, we don't have as much choice about who to relate with. It's true that some people choose their church based on existing relationships, and I think that's great. But beyond that, if you really want to expand your relational base in the church, it'll take effort. There will be people you do not feel a natural affinity for. Uh, there is no, maybe no biological connection or common interest. And the only for sure common ground, let's say, in the church is mutual allegiance to Jesus Christ. But God saves all kinds of weird people, doesn't he? Present company, I'm looking at you included and myself, uh, whereas our friends and family are more of our own choosing and development. In Christ, we may have to be more accepting of all kinds of people, some that we never may have even attempted to be close with outside a spiritual context. But God's great love can transcend differences and superficiality and even conflicts. It can bind us together so effectively that rather amazing things can take place. You know, in the early church in Acts, uh, they were able to meet the need, all of the need, from within their own ranks. Right? Whoever had need that was met by the unselfish sharing uh, by all the members mutually. Right? Everyone was in one heart and mind, uh, Luke tells us. Another example is found in Acts 13, where the church in Antioch, uh, made up of people diff of differing backgrounds, came together to be the de facto mothership for the propagation of many uh, Gentile churches. Uh, in the church at Antioch, there are prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Masyrene, uh, Manaean, who had been brought, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You know, the makeup of this was quite diverse. Barnabas was a Jew from Jerusalem. Saul, you know, who was Paul's original name, was also of Jewish heritage, but was from Tarsus, a cosmopolitan city located in Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. Commentators believe that Simeon, called Niger, was likely a black man from Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, a city in Libya, also Africa. Menaean was thought to be of noble lineage, having some connection to the royals. So you have ethnic, socioeconomic, and even age variation. Unfortunately, uh, no women are named here, but a, a few women had prominence uh, in this church, according to subsequent passages. Despite the differences, they were worshiping and fasting and praying and discerning and sending as one body. It's a winsome picture. It was this nucleus, I believe, of spiritual relationships that launched the great outreach and church planning movement through Paul. But I submit that they had to learn to love one another. They had to labor at it. You know, maybe the state of our relationships to brothers and sisters seems very distant from the church in Antioch let alone Jacob's like love time warp. Um, maybe even seven minutes with somebody from church on Zoom is awkward, let alone seven years. Maybe uh, social distancing hasn't been all that bad. I think I can understand. Yet Jesus calls us to build relationships, to work at love, even to strive uh, 
uh, as necessary, right? It would be so great for God's real love to drive our own labors of love. Well, with my remaining time, I, let me move on to the other motivators of labor present in the passage. So second, labor prompted by obligation slash deception. I think we see the opposite of Jacob's gravity-defining sense of love for Rachel when his uncle Laban tricks him into marrying the firstborn Leah. In quite the reversal, the older-slash-younger motif uh, boomerangs back on Jacob, who had tried to supplant his elder brother Esau. But this rookie Jacob gets bamboozled by the ninth-degree black belt of deception that Laban was. Laban does a switcheroo switches out uh, old, the older Leah for Rachel. Laban then finagles another seven years of work from Jacob in exchange for giving him Rachel, which was the original agreement in the first place. And Jacob comes under additional obligation due to the deceptive maneuvering of his uncle Laban, who marries off both daughters in one fell swoop uh, and thereby dooms several generations of Jacob's family to gross dysfunctionality. Now, everyone is unhappy. Jacob was working against his will, a coerced kind of servitude, doubly long and hard. Leah is unloved, her only apparent blemish or weak eyes. You know, unrequited love can be a debilitating experience, right? Rachel, though loved, is infertile. Though loved, she cannot bear children, which would have been construed as not being blessed by God. And we will see a horrible rivalry ensue between her and Leah for Jacob's affections. Even the mastermind Laban will have his comeuppance later on in the Chronicles. I think this goes to show the limits of human love, even the best forms of it. The Apostle John in his letters uh, teaches us that we need God's defining, God's clarifying love uh, to govern to um, tell us, to show us how to properly treat each other, right? We love because he first loved us. That's John's message. Um, Here, we're not told specifically that Jacob had a hard time finishing the the second seven-year contract, but the inference is pretty clear. Because of the compulsion and loss of trust, Jacob must have wearied in discharging this obligation. You know, when a person is tricked into losing time, effort, or money to do something he or she does not love, the work can be draining. It can be meaningless, right? Maybe some of us in our own occupations or or specific positions of responsibility are feeling this. When our heart is not in it, when there's no love or passion, work becomes a drudgery. It makes a world of difference to have purpose, right? To be driven by the right motivations in what we expend our time and strength uh, upon. Uh, As the well-known story variously goes, um, a famous architect uh, once came upon three bricklayers, three masons uh, toiling away. Uh, When he posed a question to them, what are you doing? Um, Each man replied with a different response. The first Man said rather glumly, I'm laying brick. What does it look like I'm doing? The second responded uh, equally uninspiringly, I'm building yet another wall. 
But the third bricklayer, uh, who seemed to be enjoying the work more than the first two, replied with a gleam in his eye, I'm building a cathedral for God. When it comes to spiritual connection and relationships, right, the lesson, this lesson is even more important. Right? What is driving our relationships? What is the source of how we love one another? You know, what's prompted? What's prompting us? Um, you know, we need relationships. We're, we're made for relationships. For the most part, we want relationships, at least a few good ones. Even an introvertish person would likely want to connect with at least one or two people. But when relationships are forced, right, when it's not driven by God's love, it becomes pure uh, work right? when there's no genuine purpose. Uh, it can be a miserable task. Uh, to repeat, what I'm saying is that we need God's exemplary love to rule in our hearts. We need to practice his love in our relationships with one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I've loved you. Right? Where's the newness there? It's as Jesus has loved us. That's what's fresh. Right? It's not love in a vacuum. It's not love from our own love-lorn supply. It's love sourced from God's agape love uh, for us. That's what should be the motivation, the driving factor. Kind of going back to another story in the Old Testament, you know, David's close compatriots loved him and put their lives on the line for his ascent to the throne. Uh, even though they didn't have good accommodations and sometimes were treated as fugitives and daily they were at the risk of death, David's men fought joyfully alongside him. Like Jonathan, David's covenantal brother, uh, the mighty men and many of the soldiers saw David as God's anointed king, whom they supported with fealty and dedication. They followed David because God was with David. Right? God's love for David modeled, I submit, their loyalty, modeled for them their loyalty to David. Right? You know, some may have considered it an honor to lay down their lives for God's purpose in David. That's why they were so tight-knit that's why this kind of love characterized them. Of course, there can be, and, and has been, this has been twisted by many military leaders, political leaders, spiritual leaders, or what have you, in the history of mankind. Yet for all the negative examples that abound, the ideal of labor prompted by authentic love right, stands as a shining example and um, inspiration. So that's my second point, that not labor prompted by obligation or deception, right? But labor prompted by God's love. Okay. Thirdly, there is a labor prompted by desperation. As it sounds, um, there is emptiness and, and misery to this kind of laboring. Uh, Leah's marriage, bereft of love, is depicted uh, in the names of the sons she bears to Jacob. Right? Even though Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, uh, he still sires sons uh, through Leah. Uh, another cultural or possible touch point for a side discussion. And sorry, again, a soft pass. Uh, the sons are described by the author as God's grace to Leah because the Lord saw that she was not loved. Thus he opens her womb and arguably closes Rachel's. Oh boy, there are a lot of thorny details, aren't there? 
Um, but the last four verses uh, of this chapter recount four consecutive sons that Leah gives birth to. So we have a slide for that. So my nomenclature is this. The equal means that the, like Reuben's name means see a son. Okay. And then if there's a squiggly line, oh, that didn't come out. Sorry, I had meant to do a squiggly line because it says like the name sounds like this Hebrew phrase. It didn't exactly, you know, have that meaning. And then if it's in quotations, it's something that Leah says as a commentary. So Reuben's name means see a son, but also sounds like he has seen my misery. So that's the firstborn. <laughs> that's what she named him. That's what she was going through. Um, Simeon. It means one who hears, right? Kind of like similar to Samuel, uh, Shimea, that in Hebrew. Um, and she says, because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. The third uh, son, Levi, it kind of sounds like the word attached. And she says, indeed, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Judah kind of sounds like praise. And she says, praise the Lord. Um, each of their names are descriptive of Leah's situation and emotions. Right? Yeah, uh, let's, um, yeah, that's it for the slide. Certainly, um, giving birth to children is one, if not the most arduous experience in the human ken. So we literally call childbirth labor, right? as in, you know, she just, the mother just went into labor. Uh, for Leah to go through such a physical ordeal four times in order to, uh, at least in part, to acquire Jacob's love for her. It's one of the tragic, pathetic narratives uh, to me in the entire Bible. You know, children are a gift from God, and in patriarchal times, sons were highly prized. But for Leah to try to win uh, Jacob's affection by delivering four sons and yet being relatively ignored by her husband, I think it just shows how in and of themselves, human relationships can be so painful. Right? The fact that she was willing to break her body to try to secure her husband's love is yeah, very disheartening to me. Of course, she must have loved her children very much. But she uses them, in a sense, as bargaining chips to um, you know, kind of in a utilitarian way. And that's sad to me. But it gets even uglier, folks. The shameful saga continues to chapter 30, where uh, the maidservants of Leah and Rachel, they also serve as mothers to Jacob's sons. You know, for Jacob to be aware of this and, and try to remedy the situation, that's also disturbing. Right? Acquiescing to have children through his wife's maidservants, I think it raises huge ethical questions. Um, then we can trace it all back to Laban, who subjugated his two daughters for economic gain, right? 14 years of work, enlisting the prodigious animal husbandry skills of Jacob in exchange for his concurrent husbanding of both his daughters. It really shows, you know, Laban's uh, twistedness, how human love alone cannot promote true goodness. Like I've been saying, only God's love really can. Only love divine, all loves excelling. Yeah, it's, as the hymn aptly puts, it has that power. Uh, let me close with a verse and an illustration. 
The verses from John 15, 13, Jesus, attributable to, attributable to Jesus. He articulates this in the final upper room discourse, the night he is betrayed and arrested. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And this is the authoritative guide. This is the model. This is uh, the example, right? Jesus's labor of love cost him everything. Um, even if we don't have to completely lay down our lives, right? I think this is, like I said, the rule. This is the sentiment. This is the drive behind a person's denial of self for the love of the beloved, right? This is a kind of labor that I want God's love to prompt in us, right? And I think, you know, we see, uh, I think, il illustrations of this kind of self-sacrifice for a greater cause, right? If you love a person or a group of persons or maybe even all of humanity in an altruistic sense, um, you're willing to labor to endure challenges and obstacles to further the future and the cause of the ones who are loved. Right? You know, great examples pervade those with uh, you know, this heart, this kind of awareness, uh, who deliberately apply their energies uh, and hard work uh, for the greater good, for, the, for a social benefit, right? In order to help people of future generations. You just had MLK Day, right? Martin Luther King Jr. was certainly one of the paramount examples. Uh, I think even before Dr. King's labor of love in the 60s, um, in the sports world, uh, Jackie Robinson's heroics in breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball is also an astounding example. Um, maybe you heard, but the home run, you know, former home run King leader Hank Aaron died this past week at the age of 86. Uh, when I was a young boy, I had a favorite book. I don't know where I got it, but it featured uh, four athletic stars, right? Uh, one from each of the uh, major, four major sports. So I remember rereading and just drinking in stories of football's Roger Staubach, Bobby Orr in hockey, the Lakers' Jerry West, and of course, Hank Aaron uh, in baseball. I remember vividly reading about how the way uh, Hank Aaron held his bat with his wrist crossed. Instead of like right over left, if you're right-handed, he would put his left over right. And that was very unorthodox and potentially dangerous, but it kind of added to his explosive power in his swing. Uh, Mr. Aaron was not only a prolific home run hitter, but he was an ambassador right, for the game. And, and, and all of baseball mourned this week. Um, and his race consciousness as a black man was also legendary. And so on Friday, the New York Times republished uh, an op-ed article called When Baseball Mattered that Aaron had written in 1997 on the 50th anniversary of when Jackie Robinson became the first baseball player to ever enter a major league lineup, the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was an incisive article about how sacrificial Jackie needed to be in order to pave the way for more black players to be allowed to play at the major league level. So let me uh, read this quote. Jackie not only showed me and my generation what we could do, he also showed us how to do it. By watching him, we knew that we would have to swallow an awful lot of pride to make it in the big leagues. We knew of the hatred and cruelty Jackie had to quietly endure from the fans and the press and the anti-integrationist teams like the Cardinals and the Phillies and even from his teammates. We also knew that he didn't subject himself to all that for personal benefit. Why would he choose to get spiked and cursed at and spat on for his own account? Jackie was a college football hero, a handsome, intelligent, talented guy with a lot going for him. He didn't need that kind of humiliation. And it certainly wasn't in his nature to suffer 
silently, but he had to, not for himself, but for me and all the young black kids like me. When Jackie Robinson loosened his fist and turned the other cheek, he was taking the blows for the love and future of his people. In the article, Aaron goes on to call out the greed-focused mindset of the current generation of black baseball players or baseball players in general, who focus more on the stardom and the lucrative nature of being a professional ball player rather than the purposes of a social conscience. Uh, he challenges the profession and, it, and the players to the right labors prompted by the right loves. Uh, why don't we uh, think about this and all the points made relating to the passage in Genesis. Let's uh, go now to God in reflection and prayer.